Welcome to After the Shofar, a Jewish Climate Network podcast, bringing you lactose-free morsels of insight for a meaningful Jewish year ahead. With fresh Jewish-Australian voices, we'll be diving into big questions inspired by this time in the Jewish calendar. How might the Jewish practice of teshuvah, repentance, make us better Jews, better people, and better climate leaders? And when all is said and done, after the shofar blows for the final time, what do we each want to stand for and be proud of when the new year rolls around? Thank you to the Erdi Foundation for supporting these important conversations and for your commitment to Jewish leadership on climate issues. We couldn't have done this without you. Our guest this week is Dr. Karl Kruschelnitsky AM, but you would know him better as Dr. Karl. Born to Holocaust surviving parents, he's known for his wacky shirts and insatiable curiosity, and he's been Australia's best known science communicator for decades, igniting scientific interest in people of all ages. He's the Julia Sumner Miller Fellow in the Science Foundation for Physics at the University of Sydney. He was also named a National Living Treasure. He was listed as the ninth most trusted person in Australia, and he has an asteroid belt named after him. We hope you enjoy this episode. Before we start, clarify how I say your name, because I don't think I've heard you say your, your last name before. Oh, Wheelbarrow is fine. That's the standard Australian expression. Just call me uh, Carl <laughs> or Dr. Carl or Carl, Carl Krushelnitsky, but uh, Krushelnitsky. Carl's easier. Fabulous. A big part of my work at JCN has been running climate conversations, bringing people together into a living room, having a shtickle of herring and communicating honestly about what's actually happening with climate change and what we can all do about it. Up until now, I have been producing this podcast behind the scenes, lingering in the background, but I'm also a primary school teacher and I'm very passionate about science education. And so I simply could not turn up the opportunity to speak with our guest today. So I've pushed Joel out of the way and I'm delighted to announce that today we are talking with Dr. Carl, Australia's most eminent and arguably beloved science communicator. Dr. Carl, it's a pleasure and an honour to have you here. I don't think I'm that eminent, but that's very kind of you. And by the way, if you're um, a teacher at a primary school, do go on, onto my webpage, drkarl.com, D-R-K-A-R-L.com, and I do free science Q&As every Wednesday afternoon um, with primary schools and high schools around Australia. Just go in, make a booking, and then we'll do it uh, over the internet one day. Fabulous. You are really well known for answering the public's wild and wacky science questions. Um, what is the strangest science question you have ever received or one that really sticks with you? Well, the one that I can't answer is why, when there's a full moon, is the full moon on the horizon so much bigger to your eyeball, to, to your appearance, than the same full moon a few hours later? And in fact, there are two reasons why the full moon a few hours later should be bigger. There are two reasons why the full moon directly above you should be bigger. Firstly, it's closer by about 3,000 kilometres. And secondly, there is not a um, lens effect. When you're looking at the moon on the horizon, it's both further away by the radius of the Earth, plus the air acts in such a way as to make it smaller. We do not know the answer to that, even with all of our today's technology. Wow. I feel like my dad gave me an answer to that when I was maybe eight and I've just been carrying that around. Um, but if you're telling me that we don't have an answer, then I might have to go back and quiz him again. Well, the standard answer is that you compare it to stuff on the horizon, trees and buildings and the like, and look so much um, bigger compared to those small things. But if you have pilots flying across the Pacific 
and there's nothing to compare it to. There's just the moon and the ocean. They still see it as significantly bigger than a few hours later when they peer out of the side window and look upwards and it, it looks smaller. In fact, it is physically bigger to the eye if you measure it with optical instruments. Well, thank you very much for those answers. You have scratched a part of my brain uh, that needed scratching. Your most recent book is Dr. Carl's Little Book of Climate Change Science, which is perfect. Um, and there are some ripper questions on the blurb that I'd love to get stuck into. I highly recommend everybody go out and get this book if they don't already have it, and it'll be in the show notes as well, and definitely seems like a great one for younger audiences too, but I'm sure there's a lot in there that uh, many adults aren't sufficiently across. The one question I'd really like to dive into is how can we move to zero and even negative emissions? What is your answer for this in a nutshell? Uh, Two-part answer in a nutshell. One, bring our emissions to zero, which we can do 95% of in 10 years. And two, start amplifying the sinks, S-I-N-K-S. Now, to the average person, a sink is something in a house related to plumbing where you wash your hands. But to a scientist, a sink is a place where you put stuff and it just vanishes. A sink is infinitely large. I remember in my early days working for the steelworks, BHP, AIS in Wollongong, I was taught that the solution to pollution is dilution. In other words, just chuck it away. Oceans is best. Uh, And the oceans are infinite, so you can never pollute it. But that's not true. The oceans are not infinite. The world is not infinite. So as uh, an example of that, um, anywhere you go in the world, if you collect the rainwater, you will pick up PFASs, polyfluorinated alkaline um, somethings. And these chemicals are used in firefighting and waterproofing and they're very robust, and so they're everywhere around the world. They're bad for your health, and in most samples that we collect them around the world, they're above the safety level, right? So the world is not infinite. Second example of the world not being infinite. Now, here's a question for you without notice. You ready for it, Dr. Eleanor? Have you heard the word plasticenta? It's a new word referring to what you find when a woman gives birth. You check out the placenta, and there in the placenta, you find microplastics. Well, that is horrifying. Yeah, microplastics in the placenta. Yeah. And so the world is not infinite and we can't pollute it. So we need to do better. You mentioned sinks before, expanding our sinks. Mm. And another one of your questions um, on the back of the book is how can kelp help? I have a two-part question. One is, can you tell us in an Australian context, what are the carbon sinks that have the most staying power, I guess, because there's certainly a lot of talk about offsets and growing forests and planting trees and old growth forests better and is kelp better? What are the carbon sinks that are most effective in Australia? Uh, Simple answer, I don't know. Uh, Depends on where you are in Australia and what time of year you're dealing with. Um, The point is that all the sinks can be improved and made stronger. Sorry, don't have better information. In fact, I don't think I answered your first question properly either. The first question in terms of how can we move to zero and even then negative emissions. Okay, let's just run through that to zero and even negative emissions. So at the moment, we are embedded in a society where fossil fuels are needed for everything. As in the old days, in the early 1800s, slavery was embedded in societies around the world. By 1832, the British Empire had outlawed slavery throughout the British Empire. The Americans went down a different pathway and there was a war involved and bad blood from that still goes on today. So we've got to change our society in a way that fossil fuels are not embedded in everything. 
And this is where it gets complicated because they're well and truly embedded. Um, and in fact, better ways that don't involve fossil fuels have been specifically blocked just so that the fossil fuel producers can keep on making more profit in the short term. So specifically with what we can do to stop it, the best answer is to look at Pearl Harbor, 7th of December, 1941. And the Americans just went ape. They didn't say, let's just stop importing sushi from Japan. But instead, they said, let's do something about it. They shut down all the car factories and said, you're going to open up. And instead, you're going to make weapons of war, such as artillery, tanks and aeroplanes. And looking at the specific example of aeroplanes, they, in the previous half century, the Americans had made 3,000 aeroplanes. In the next four years, they made not 3,000, but 300,000 aeroplanes. So what we need to do is to shift ourselves onto a war footing so that we go all out to simultaneously remove fossil fuels from being embedded in our society, which fits in with the other part, which is to work out ways to get what we need without fossil fuels. And there will be some cases where fossil fuels are essential. For example, I love Kevlar. Have you ever run across Kevlar? Not in my teaching or climate career yet. Okay, so Kevlar is made out of oil. And in the old days, mm -hmm. you know, when you were doing outback travel, you had a steel winch, which was actually a steel cable and a winch, which was actually fairly fragile. If you, got, you put a kink or a bent into the steel cable, it could snap at that point when the stress was on. And it was difficult to roll up. And then it was replaced by a material which is weight for weight and size for size stronger. And that's Kevlar, a material made from oil. So I still see oil as being useful for be, being turned into certain useful plastics. Uh, burning it is just a terrible situation and we need to move ourselves away mm. from it. And there are two documents I would recommend for the audience to read. One, giving the international point of view, comes from drawdown.org, D-R-A-W-D-O-W-N.org. Read the Drawdown Report, and that deals with simultaneously bringing emissions to zero and improving the sinks. For the Australian point of view, I'd recommend bze.org.au, beyondzeroemissions.org.au. And it's called the Million Jobs Plan. And they talk about how going to renewables will provide more jobs. And in fact, it turns out that the fossil fuel companies and the mining companies between them employ fewer people than McDonald's. Um, they also pay a lot less tax. So I personally paid more tax than Exxon on its $50 billion income over the last 10 years. On top of that is the fact that the fossil fuel companies, on top of their massive profits, are getting 7% of the world GDP as a subsidy, which they don't have to pay back. And there's no real good reason they're getting it. That is four times the world military budget, five times Australia's GDP, and 85 times the world's space budget. So there's enough money being paid out by governments already to the fossil fuels companies. But they're not going to want to give it up. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've never heard the slavery um analogy before. I've definitely heard the ah. uh, World War II mobilisation of let's turn toy factories into munitions factories, but not the slavery one. And I ah. find that really interesting because it associates an ethical premise, an ethical need to change. And I think we've only just fully understood that these industries are actually doing us harm and therefore we don't want to do things that do us harm anymore. You have something else? Yeah, on the slavery thing. Now, here's something weird about the slavery. When the Brits got rid of slavery in 1832, they paid compensation not to the slaves, but to the slave owners. 
this is, is an indication that in some cases the system can be fixed or crooked and the entire system needs to be fixed to fix the smaller problem of climate change. Well, I want to sidestep a little bit away from slavery, but that is a really interesting analogy. Another one of the questions that's on the back of your book, and we are very happy to find it there because we wanted to ask you about this anyway, is who did the early research into climate change and then spent billions trying to cover it up? So many of our listeners may already know uh, that ExxonMobil um, did a very comprehensive misinformation campaign that kicked off in the 1990s when they themselves discovered the impacts of climate change. Um, Can you tell us a bit about what's happened since then and does misinformation today still persist? And if so, what does it look like now? How can we, how can the average person recognise it and respond to it? Ah, there's still misinformation around. I read an article in part of the Murdoch Press that was talking about scientists had proved that climate change didn't exist. What the article was about was by some research by a famous climate denialist, a nuclear scientist, not a climate scientist, who looked at crops growing in a small part of the world and said, hey, look, over the last couple of years, the um, annual produce has increased, therefore climate change doesn't exist. That is the ultimate cherry picking. But if you read the headline and you didn't know any better, you'd be fooled by that. Was it climate change doesn't exist or climate change is actually going to be great because there's more carbon dioxide feeding plants? The the Murdoch press oscillates between those two, that it doesn't exist, that it's going to be great, and if it does exist, it's too late to do anything about it. They kind of remind me of the a mixture of the Dunning-Kruger effect and the village idiot. There's a fantastic podcast called Drilled that goes into the sort of almost true crime story of uh, the deliberate misinformation of the fossil fuel industry, which we'll link in our show notes. So maybe we won't delve into the history of the deliberate misinformation, but it certainly was, I, for just from my personal experience, that was one of the most sort of heartbreaking things when I learned about climate and what was really going on was that there were some really deliberate bad actors who had been hiding the truth for a long time. And it just was feeling too much like a movie script, you know, like a bad action movie that the big corporation was actually bad and had um, had profit at heart and kind of nothing else. So um, our listeners can dive into Drilled if they'd like to hear a bit more about that. It begins in 1973 when Munich Re, the world's largest reinsurance company, could see that the weather, extreme weather impacts were making their payouts bigger, their insurance payouts bigger. So uh, they started increasing their insurance premiums in certain areas due to global warming or the greenhouse effect. Nothing personal, it was just business. That was 73. Uh, Four years later, in 77, the chief scientist for Exxon, James Black, said that there's no doubt that uh, greenhouse gas emissions are influencing the climate. In 1980, three years later, Exxon combined with all the other fossil fuel companies around the world and started up a big, fancy um, climate change research unit. And in 1982, on the 12th of November, they had a meeting where they showed their projections and they said that if they did nothing and if they continued business as usual, then by the year 2020, which was 38 years later, that carbon dioxide levels would reach 415 parts per million and they were right on the money and the temperature in the lower atmosphere would have gone up by one centigrade degree right on the money again. Um, and in, uh, in the mid-80s, they actually, the big fossil fuel companies, decided to not developed the biggest gas field in the whole world at the time, the tuna, in the South China Sea, because while it did contain 30% methane, it contained 70% carbon dioxide, and then uh, it would become firstly 1% of all human carbon dioxide emissions, and secondly, the largest single point emitter of carbon dioxide in the whole world. And being good corporate citizens, they decided not to do that. And then 
something happened in 1990, we don't know what. They chucked a UE and since then for a third of a century they've been telling lies. Do you think that there is a role for big companies, big fossil fuel companies and energy companies like Shell, BHP, ExxonMobil to be part of the transition to a renewable future? I'm not competent to answer that. You'd need an economist who would look at their balance books. Some of these companies claim to be in magnificent debt, which is why they never pay tax on their income. So you'd need an economist to go through their books properly. I'm suspecting that since they've got a long history of being bad actors, uh, that they should not be involved. But I do not have enough accounting knowledge to know. A follow-up question. Is there a move towards renewable energy, particularly in Australia, that you're most excited about, whether it's a company or a technology? I'm excited by all moves towards renewable technology. Even with the previous federal government trying as hard as they could to stop it, we still end up with a situation that in the year 2020, one quarter of all electricity generated in Australia came from renewables. There's one major problem with burning carbon to make energy, which is that it kills people. In the year 2018, which is before COVID, in that calendar year, around the world, 45 million people died. Of those 45 million, one-fifth were killed by air pollution from burning fossil fuels. The fossil fuel companies did not pay a single cent for the lost income to the families or to the state or the lost taxes to the state or for the health costs or even for buying the bloody caskets or paying the funerals. They got a free ride. We can get totally 100% renewable for electricity within 10 years if we make the right decisions. Mm -hmm. And some of these decisions will involve the fossil fuel companies making less money. Now, Mm -hmm. in the same way that the slave owners like getting money from slaves, the fossil fuel companies are not going to like it in the same way that tobacco Mm -hmm. companies love the fact that they make so much out of tobacco. Are there things from those two examples? Are there, you know, when we think about the eradication of slavery and the campaign to end, you know, advertising and, profit, you know, record profits out of tobacco and covering up the, the harm that was being done, are there any things from those playbooks that people in general should be using? Are there any lessons to be learned? Yes. The only people with power are the politicians. All that the citizens can do is either become politicians themselves, which happened a lot in the last Australian election where one-third of the vote went to neither of the big parties or people can support politicians who do what they want. Mm. If you support a politician that doesn't do what you want, then you'll end up with the consequences. I myself ran for federal politics in the year 2007. It was a great education. It's a really interesting space at the moment in the post post-election world where we do have this kind of third power in our previously two-party system. There's a feeling now, I think, for people who are concerned about climate that they know politics is important, but now they're not quite sure what to do or how to engage. Many people feel nervous or intimidated about engaging in formal politics or feel that they don't know enough. What would you say to them? What would you advise to people now that we have a Labor government pushing through an ambitious climate policy, hopefully increasingly ambitious climate policy, and we have many, many independent candidates with climate as a major part of their platform, is it time to relax? What should we be saying to people who are looking to get more involved? It is time to work harder uh, because the pendulum will go this way and that way. It oscillates as it does all the time in all matters of physics, emotions, love and politics. So people need to push harder. There's a range of things they can do from being a volunteer. And if anybody wants to be a volunteer for politics, I would strongly recommend that they become a volunteer for a party that they absolutely abhor. 
Interesting. <laughs> Tell me more. It's good to be inside the belly of the beast. And you'll discover that in many cases, the people are just like you and me. I would recommend that and then work your way up to then supporting the politicians you want or even running for politics. Okay. That's a very clear list. I hope many people take you up on the call for that. I would like to sidestep a bit more to young people in particular, and this is something we get asked about a lot at JCN. We get asked about how to deal with kids, how to talk to kids about climate change, which maybe is the topic for another podcast um, of climate, climate-concerned climate educators, but also in terms of young people and the future that they're facing. So people who are maybe finishing up high school or entering uni and thinking they're at the start of their career trajectory. What are the jobs and industries that are starting to help solve this problem that young people could be looking to get into if they are wanting to make a difference in their life and career on climate change? Pretty well any of the companies involved in the renewables. And when the bze.org.au people put out their million jobs plan, they're talking about a million jobs across Australia in each of the renewable industries. And Australia is ideally situated in getting into electric vehicle manufacturing, but instead we've gone down a pathway of getting dirt out of the ground and then selling it and then buying it back as manufactured vehicles. So we need people to start manufacturing industries and then exporting the goods that they've made. Again, a very clear call that I hope many JCN listeners uh, will be able to report back and said, I started a manufacturing business because Dr. Carl told me to. <laughs> Slightly different question. If I could magically give you a billion dollars to throw at a climate change solution, what would you spend it on? Well, um, there are many ways to fix climate change. You have to look at the sources of all the greenhouse gases. So transport depending on where you are in the world, is 15 20% or 25%. And ground transport can be fixed entirely by going entirely across to electric. All the major car companies in Europe are no longer doing research into uh, internal combustion engines. They're still making a few of them, but they're not doing research. The research is all going into electric vehicles. So um, then you'd need 5% of the world's emissions to be uh, taken care of for shipping, and for aeroplanes, we need both, and we could run them on hydrogen. By the way, just as a weird uh, comment here, uh, the total shipping of the world is around 2 billion tonnes a year that is shipped across the oceans. Half of that is fossil fuels. Isn't that wow. ridiculous? So then we've got uh, steel and concrete. Between them, they account for 15% of global emissions, and they could be made entirely zero carbon within 10 years. You just have to make it a priority and then make it happen. If you remember back to the ozone hole, it was mm. proved that the CFCs used as a refrigerant gas were damaging the ozone layer. The companies making it said it's impossible. There's no other product that will do the job. The companies, the countries of the world got together, set up the Montreal Protocol and said, do it. And the company said, okay. So we could do it uh, easily. Then you're looking at agriculture. And that's a multifaceted problem that'd take between five and 40 years, but you'd get most of it within about 10 years. Building, etc. you can go through each of the facets of what in our society generates uh, greenhouse gases and then gradually wind them down to zero or quickly wind them down to zero over the next 10 years. When I'm hearing you talk about these things, I'm filled with a sense of excitement and urgency. What would you advise someone like me who maybe works in education or perhaps finance or isn't going to move into one of these um, one of these industries in a sort of physical sense? How can we support these types of industries? 
to speed up the transition. Uh, public awareness, as you're doing now through this fine podcast, uh, continuing street demonstrations and uh, supporting people in politics. It's really going to come down to the decisions of the politicians around the world. Imagine if America had decided not to get involved in the Second World War. It would have been a whole different outcome. Uh, mm. One of the good things that came out of their involvement was that for the first time, women and minorities got equal pay. And to keep the factories running, uh, the Americans brought in government-funded childcare. Is there a climate solution that you're expecting or hoping to see big things from in the next 12 months specifically? Because we're thinking about this whole podcast is about we're approaching Jewish New Year and we're thinking about the Jewish year ahead within the Jewish calendar. Is there something that if you could almost have a wish that you could see a particular industry or a project really have great success, what would it be? Well, there's so many, but an easy one, which just needs money thrown at it and which would be very effective, would be in introducing seaweed of a certain type to make up 1% of the feed of cattle. Now, seaweed is not just grass. It's got a whole bunch of complex chemicals because it's got to survive underwater. It's got to do photosynthesis and it's got to avoid getting skin cancer or cancer from uh, the sun, as well as avoid getting beaten, eaten by fishes and other creatures. And so it's got all these weird chemicals. And there's a certain type of seaweed that when you add in the ratio of 1% by mass to the feed of a cattle, a head of cattle, will reduce the uh, methane emissions by 95%. That would be a short-term and big uh, return project to be involved in. That's the, that's the Rosh Hashanah wish is to have asparagopsis in in cattle feed. That's a wonderful a wonderful wish for the year twenty twenty three slash five thousand seven hundred and eighty three, whichever calendar you go by. Dr. Carl, I have one final question. It's really a request actually for you. Um, because this podcast is called After the Shofar, we're referring to the moment in synagogue on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is really the culmination of these big, big festival days for us, when the ram's horn, the shofar, is blown and that signifies the beginning of the year. And so people are really ready to start their year, hopefully with a clean slate. They've been atoning, uh, really apologising for things that they have done wrong and committing to be a better person. That's a very powerful moment when you're standing in shul and you've been fasting for 25 hours and we are thinking about how we can all be better people and better climate leaders um, after the shofar blows for that final time. None of our guests have had a shofar just lying around to blow, but we have asked them to play any kind of instrument they have lying around. So we were wondering, do you have an instrument that's lying around that you would care to blow or share with us or even show to us to signify that moment of the shofar is going to blow, it starts a new year, and we're going to try and make this year count for as much as possible for our climate? The only instrument, musical instrument I have is my voice, which is pretty crappy. And the only song I would really think of would be Hot Summer Night, which has got the wonderful line of, Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. And I'll stop because my voice is so bad. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Uh, I would say that your voice is a very powerful weapon, actually, given your your huge and incredibly important history of communicating science in Australia's classrooms and cars and through radio and everything else. So thank you for sharing that instrument with us. That's absolutely fantastic. You're awfully kind. If I, if I can be part of um, bringing us to a better world where we can bring 
greenhouse gases and the climate back to what they were in the 20th century and we don't have to evacuate 50,000 people out of Brisbane and Sydney each year and we don't have half a dozen deaths in Brisbane and Sydney each year from the floods, that's a better place. Thanks for tuning in to After the Shofar. We hope this podcast has helped your Rosh Hashanah be meaningful and nourishing. As we lead up to Yom Kippur, we invite you to think about what you want to learn, say and do for our climate and community in the coming year. Check out the show notes for any details from this episode and follow us on social media at Jewish Climate Network to see what else we're up to. Gamar Khatimatova.